What's the worst piece of financial advice you've ever heard? Today, I wanna share with you four examples of things that I still hear to this day, things that people still believe but are actually bad financial advice. We're gonna jump into that on episode 74 of the Financial Pathway Podcast. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on the Financial Pathway Podcast with Nate Skelly, where we discuss important financial questions and give you practical advice to guide you on your financial journey. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. You can also follow the Financial Pathway page on Facebook for more helpful financial tips and videos. All right, welcome back. Financial Pathway Podcast is Nate Skelly. The question for today, the inspiration for today's episode is what's the worst financial advice you've ever heard? It's kind of a fun question for me because I've, I've heard some bad advice before and I, you know, sometimes personally, but honestly, the internet is probably the best source of bad financial advice. I, I'll be honest with you, a guilty pleasure for me over this last like year is seeing these uh, TikTok videos of just some real doozies, just just some pieces of financial advice that is so way off base, it's really laughable. And it's, I mean, it's laughable to the point where it's actually sad because some of these accounts have really big followings and a lot of people that are just kind of eating up this advice like, oh yeah, I guess that's that's good advice. And so that part of it, it's really sad. Um, I'm not on TikTok, but like on Twitter or on Facebook, like I, I see plenty of these things being shared. And I know TikTok is not the only place where bad financial advice is shared, but TikTok definitely appeals to a younger audience. And therefore there's a lot of like, a lack, there's a knowledge gap, but also a lot of people that are in this mode of like, how do I get rich and how do I get rich fast? And so I think it's just a, a per, and, and also a, a medium medium in which people want things in quick sound bites. They don't want, you know, TikTok doesn't allow for a lot of nuance and explanation. So it's like, give me a tip that's like a wow factor, but in 30 seconds, you know, and that's usually not a good formula for sound financial advice. So the internet's great, and I love the internet because it allows me to do what I do, but you got to take everything you read with a healthy dose of skepticism. I mean, like, I've used the internet to search just in the last week, like, who is Salman Rushdie, and when is No Way Wednesday at Sweet Frog, so I don't have to pay $11 for a bowl of frozen yogurt. Like, it's great, and we use it for so many things. It's just ubiquitous in our lives of, like, if I have a question, if I need information, I go to the internet. But when it comes to financial advice, well, what's on the internet may be good advice, maybe not. And unfortunately, there's a lot of things that I come in contact with on a pretty regular basis that are actually bad pieces of financial advice. But they're not the like, you know, right in your face, obvious red flag like that can't be true. I, I Part of me wanted to just kind of have fun with this episode and be like, here are some of the craziest ones I've ever heard. But most of them you would listen to that and you'd be like, yeah, of course that's not true. Of course that's crazy. Like, who would believe that? Um, so, I mean, we can kind of have fun being like, oh, look at this. Look at how crazy this is. But I thought, actually, what would probably be more helpful is let's spend a little bit of time on some pieces of bad financial advice, but ones that, that are actually plausible. And I can see how people would, if they heard it from a friend, a family member, they would say, okay, that, that makes sense to me, but it's actually not helpful. And these are ones that I've... All of these ones I've heard multiple times in my line of work, and so I think they're definitely worth talking about and and hopefully clear up some confusion um, for some of us. So let's just jump jump right into it. Number one, first piece of financial uh, bad financial advice, and I have just four of these. I know we could spend all day on 
you know, a laundry list of these, but I, I just wanted to limit it to four. Per, first piece of bad financial advice is keep a balance on your credit card in order to improve your credit score. I've heard this several times, but it's not true. Uh, it doesn't help your credit score. In fact, um, it doesn't make any difference to your credit score because what gets reported to the credit bureaus to Experian and TransUnion and Equifax is the statement balance. So at the end of your billing period, if you have $500 worth of charges, that's what gets sent to them. Look, you spent $500 in this billing period. Now, what you pay on that statement balance is up to you. You pay $25, you pay the full balance, $500. That doesn't get reported to TransUnion, Experian, Equifax. They will just get the next month's statement balance. So in between, they don't they they don't see they don't know how much you are or are not paying of that balance. So sometimes people are like, oh, I'll just I'll just pay off two fifty, leave two fifty on there, and that's going to help me somehow. But it doesn't. In fact, it only hurts you because you're leaving a balance on your credit card and you're paying interest that you don't have to. So if you want to increase increase your credit score, the two best things that you can do for yourself are pay your payments on time and keep your utilization rate low. The utilization rate is how much of your credit limit you're using each month. So if your limit is $5,000 and you're using 4,900 of it, that's bad. That's that's almost all of your credit limit and that's going to ding your score. But if you're using, let's say, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 of your $5,000 limit, that's good. That's like 20 to 30% and that's a good range to be in. If you'll do that consistently, that'll help build your score, leaving a balance does not. If you want to do a deeper dive on credit scores, I have an episode um, we did previously where I, I walked through the five factors that affect your credit score and how to build it over time, and, and that would be a worthwhile deep dive. Number two, second piece of bad financial advice that a lot of people believe is that everyone should have permanent life insurance. I, at the risk of, uh, I'll, I'll try to be objective here. I, I don't want to go on a rant because um, I, I come in contact with this all the time, and it's such a difficult topic to talk about because it's a very firmly held belief by a lot of people that permanent life insurance is the way to go. It's the one size fits all solution. It's everything you need in one financial product. And 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 honestly, it's just not true. Permanent life insurance, I'm talking whole life insurance, universal life insurance, traditional life insurance, it's all under the umbrella of permanent life insurance. Life insurance can be term or permanent. Term is you have it for a certain number of years and you pay your monthly premiums, if the person insured doesn't die, then it just ends and there is no benefit. But it's the cheapest. Term insurance is much cheaper because it's contract. It's a bet, if you will. You pay us during this time frame. If you die, we pay out the death benefit. If you don't, we keep the money. Um, first of all, when it comes to this idea of permanent life insurance and it being the right solution for everybody, consider the source. Okay, uh, Most people that will tell you this either do sell life insurance or have sold life insurance in the past. So they are pretty biased in their opinion. Uh, a lot of times people extol the virtues of permanent life insurance because it pays very well. And I'm, by paying very well, I'm talking about them, the people that sell the life insurance. It pays them very well, and it, it really does. Uh, a lot of agents can make around 100% commission on the first year's um, premium to the life insurance policy. So if you're going to put $500 a month into this whole life insurance policy, and that's $6,000 a year, depending on the company and the type of policy, I mean, that this person could be making $6,000 on that sale and trails on that sale for years to come. So 
is very advantageous for them and pays them very well. And so consider this, like if they've got a 30-year-old coming to them and saying, okay, hey, I need some financial advice. Um, I want to get some life insurance coverage in place. I'm thinking half a million dollars is what I need. And I also want to save for retirement and just kind of start putting money away for my future. Now, this 30-year-old could go get a term life insurance policy for less than $50 a month probably if they're healthy. And then they could put $500 a month into a Roth IRA. And if they would do that consistently over the next 35 years, by the time they turn 65, they would have close to a million and a half dollars, you know, uh, based on, on what we've seen you know, previously from what the stock market does and over that time period. That would be a great solution. But is the insurance salesman ever going to tell them to go that route? No, of course not. They're going to recommend that they get a whole life insurance policy and take not only the $50 for the term and life insurance policy, but take the 500 they were going to put in the Roth IRA, put that all in a whole life policy, and they'll make quite a lot of money off of that. But is that what's in the best interest of that 30-year-old? I would argue absolutely not. Most people, especially if you're young, especially if you're healthy, should have term life insurance. It's cheaper. It does exactly what you need to do. And here's the thing. Sometimes we overthink this, folks. Why do you want to have life insurance? Why do you need to have life insurance? So that if you die, those who financially depend on you can be taken care of. That's it. That's the reason. So, you know, permanent life insurance may be a good solution, but it's really only going to be a solution for a small segment of people. And I'm talking probably less than 5% of people. I I don't know how I can put an exact number on that, but uh, in my estimation, it's not a huge number. It's not a big segment of the population of people that would actually like, truly that's the best option for them. Like in their situation, what they're looking for, the answer to their problem is whole life insurance, very low number of people. Um, Usually they're older, usually they're higher income, usually they're people maybe that have a health concern that could be part of it. Usually they're people that are maxing out their other tax advantage benefits. They're using their 401k. They're using their health savings account. They're using the benefits through their workplace, maybe group life or disability insurance. Like they're already doing those things and they're looking for something else, something on top of that. Selling permanent life insurance is try, it's, it's kind of like trying to sell cable to people that only watch three or four or five channels. Like they don't need all of this stuff. They just need one thing. They need one, like, because insurance salespeople often cite the multiple benefits of permanent life insurance. Look, you know, you can it's an investment vehicle. You can invest money for the future. You can borrow against your cash value. See, you build up cash value and you can be your own bank and take money out and it's tax-free and you have all these extra options you can add on to it. You can get disability insurance. You can get long-term care insurance. And that's true and you can do all of these things, but the, the question we should be asking ourselves is why? Why would I want that? Why would I need that? If I want to invest for my future, I can invest. I can invest in 401k, a Roth IRA. Like there are options available to me that are better suited to invest for my future. If I want to have money for emergencies, I can build up an emergency fund to have cash on hand to take care of those emergencies. If I want things other than life insurance, it's usually better to go to direct sources to get those things instead of trying to bundle them all up into a permanent life insurance policy. All right, before I go down the rabbit trail of talking more about permanent life insurance. Here's the thing, folks. At the end of the day, is permanent life insurance something that everybody should have? Absolutely not. It is a good solution for some, but it's a minority. And probably if you're young and healthy, you're going to be better served to get term life insurance 
and to use other solutions to save for the future or get other insurance coverage on some of those other things. There. Number three, don't make more money because you'll have to pay more in taxes. Here's another piece of bad financial advice that I've heard, and it's a big misunderstanding. And I, I totally see where people are coming from on this, but it's a misunderstanding of how the tax system works. What they're thinking is, if I make an extra $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, that's going to put me in the next tax bracket, and then I'm going to be paying way more in taxes because I'm at this this next tier of tax, you know, of, of the percentage of tax that I have to pay. Our tax system is progressive, meaning that the higher your income, the higher the tax bracket you go into. But the misunderstanding comes in because people don't usually realize when you cross into a new tax bracket, that doesn't mean all of your money is taxed at that new rate, only the money that's in that bracket. So for instance, if you're single, your first about $10,000 of income is in the 10% tax bracket. Then from there up to $41,775, you're in the 12% tax bracket. So the first $10,000, $10,275 is actually what it is, is taxed at 10%. Then the next, from $10,275 to $41,775, is taxed at 12%. And then when you go past that number into the 22% tax bracket, which is a big jump, only that money that's in that next tax bracket gets taxed at 22%. Does that make sense? So if you made $42,000, this is for 2022, by the way, in case you're listening to this in a future year, they, the numbers do change each year. But but if you made $42,000, you were only $225 into the 22% tax bracket. So only that $225 is going to be taxed at 22%. Does that make sense? So therefore, you don't really have to be afraid to make more money and thinking that somehow you're going to end up behind or that you will have paid up more in taxes than if you had just stayed in the tax bracket that you're at. Yes, as you move up, the government will take more of those extra dollars that you earn, but they will not retroactively go back to all the money that you earned and tax it at that new rate. So I hope that makes sense. Then number four, fourth piece of bad financial advice that you should not fall for is that the best way to make money investing is going to go is is to go big on a single stock or crypto or fill in the blank with whatever financial um, investment you want you want to think of there. A lot of financial advice on social media is related to people's stock picks because I think that's this just the human curiosity. There's something about that that really intrigues us, and uh, we'd all love to hit that home run. And so people that post about hey this IPO over here or this earnings call for this company over here or here's here's my expert stock picks on which stocks to buy and what stocks to short to bet against and. The big misconception in all of this is that this is the best way to slingshot your way to wealth. You buy or you short, you bet against the stock, and you get it right. You double, you triple your money in a relatively short amount of time. And that's what you know. People think that's what the really smart people do. That's what the good investors do. They they know the ones to go big on. They double, they triple money in in a short amount of time. Then they pull their money out when that investment starts to cool, and they repeat the process. And the reality is that very few people do this successfully. And the people that do it successfully, many times it's because of luck and, and no other reason. People that try to do the day trading, people that try to time the market and do these things where they're, where they're going big on single investments, single stocks, or cryptos, they almost always end up worse off. That's not to say they can't have a really hot streak and a good run where they do make some money, at least on paper, for a short amount of time. But building wealth is almost always a slow and boring process. I mean, think about the most common ways that people become millionaires in this country. It's not because they bet big on a stock. 
It's not because they got in on a cryptocurrency early on. It's because they invested in real estate, usually through their primary home. They build equity in their primary home, and maybe they own a vacation home or a rental property. And, and so over time, as they pay those loans off, they have quite a bit of equity that they sit on. Uh, number two, they start their own business, and so that business becomes a worthwhile asset over time. Or number three, they invest in their retirement accounts, their 401k, their IRA, Roth IRA, and over time, those build up to sizable accounts and become quite a nest egg. That's the most common ways that people become millionaires. And most people don't become millionaires until they're well into their 50s or 60s. It takes decades and it's slow and it's not very exciting. And so really avoid the temptation to want to lean in on those home run swings. I mean, it's very tempting, but it's not a reliable path to wealth. Okay, That's not the best way to make money investing and to go big on a single stock. And, and really what you have to learn is that on social media, on the internet, there's going to be a lot of carnival barkers. And, you know, if you really want the oversized plush Garfield stuffed animal, it's better to buy it off Amazon instead of trying to play the rig game where you got to get the, the ring on the milk jug or hit five three-pointers on a row in a row and it's an 11-foot hoop. Like, the game is set up in such a way to where the odds are against you. And this is not a good way to play the game. Not that it's an impossible way. Not saying nobody ever does it, but it's not the smart approach, okay? So don't get distracted by the noise. The best way to build wealth is slow and steady. So what other bad financial advice have you heard? I would be really curious to hear your thoughts and your input on that. So shoot me an email. Info at nateskelly.com is the best way to get a hold of me. And as always, thanks for listening to the Financial Pathway Podcast, and I'll see you on the next episode.